0: For decades, the Vietnam War has been a Hollywood obsession. Apocalypse Now, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, First Blood. These were blockbuster films, embraced by audiences and critics alike. And for decades, they've helped us understand a painful war. And understand each other. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Brian Raftery. And this is Do We Get to Win This Time? How Hollywood Made the Vietnam War. Listen on the Big Picture Feed.
1: This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on a limited plan. Additional taxes, fees and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows, plus there's free delivery and even gas discounts, so when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this, plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only, separate registration required, $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. I need to staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at ringer.com and joining me in the studio, his gym tan laundry is actually sex, lies, and videotape. It's Andy Greenwald! That was a good intro. Thanks, man. Steven Soderbergh is on the podcast today. It's Incredible. pretty exciting. I wanted to spend a few minutes today on Monday. This is when this is going up. Talking about Full Circle, which concluded, I believe, by the time people hear this about two weeks ago. It finished its six-episode run on Max, and I thought it was remarkable. I wanted to chat with you a little bit about that. And then Stoderberg also has another series that he did in between Magic Mike and Full Circle. He shot an eight-episode web series that's up on his website, extension75.com. Called Command Z, and it stars Michael Sarah and Roy Wood and Chloe Radcliffe. And I highly recommend people check it out. We talked a little bit about that. It's a sci-fi comedy, and we talked about Full Circle. And we also talked about his career, especially his career, Andy, mm-hmm. since Che. Mm. Since he made Che. And, you know, that he had dabbled or had a dalliance with the idea of, of retiring at a various some point in there.
2: He said that he was. He, he said
1: was. that he was retiring from movies. But since Che. I wanted to just sort of throw this up against the wall. I kind of threw it to him, and, and mm-hmm. he more or less agreed that he is one of the most explicitly political filmmakers we've had in our lifetime. Hmm. That almost all of his genre work that has come out, you know, over the last 12, 15 years has had incredibly probing sociopolitical analysis or storytelling at the heart of it even mm. if it's dressed up in a comedy or if it's dressed up in a 1950s film noir or if it's dressed up in a a musical about a guy, you know, trying to make furniture who has to become a stripper to make ends meet whatever it is he's like so aware of and focused on capitalism and the crushing weight of capitalism on mm. individuals and I thought that that definitely came through in full circle
2: I agree, and I think that what's interesting about it is that I, until you suggested that framing, I, I don't think I think of him as an explicitly political filmmaker, but I think that's kind of naive. Well, I think what of I him do as think,
1: a formalist, usually, you know?
2: Yes, in this willingness to like go between genres and styles and take on the challenges. Yeah. But I think the other constant, and we referred to this when we first t- talked about Full Circle the other week, and it's very relevant to our conversation about the show, is that uh, unlike many of his contemporaries in cinema, or as filmmakers, he is resolutely focused on the present. I mean, the Nick was a a period piece, but beyond that, he is almost uniquely interested in the world as it is. Yes. And not running from it. And that in and of itself is intensely political, right? Because if you turn the camera on something that's happening now, you are showing us something. That is
1: exactly what he said.
2: My God! He was, he so was, I, yeah. it goes without saying that I, I regretted my inability to participate <laughs> in the okay. interview, but now I'm just guessing at it. So, talk
1: me through your feelings about Full Circle.
2: I think I've I have two responses to it. Uh, the broad one is I just love that this was there for us. I love that he made this. Yeah, I loved having something that was dense, that was a little bit challenging in terms of just keeping up with it. it didn't it had no hand-holding. I love that it was about this moment about. People and cities and parts of the world and parts of New York City that cameras don't often show us or don't demonstrate interest in, um, and I love that it was the way it was. It was released two per week for three weeks, I believe.
1: Yeah, I think was that. I think that was how they did it. Yeah,
2: and in the middle of summer, and it it is an example of the type of show that I that I think I'm often worried is going to get squeezed out of not just because the industry is contracting and making less shows, but because how do you communicate this that yeah. there's no Underlying IP, there is no one star performance. It's not. We we in our previous podcast we talked about Hijack and why we liked about it. This is the opposite of that. Yeah, they're both good. Yeah. Um. So I celebrate its existence and then turn the page and get a little bit deeper. This show is fascinating and had really remarkable performances from actors known and unknown,
1: also really it challenging was, performances.
2: Yeah, and it, and I think and I think all of that was rewarding. Yeah, the, all the challenges of it. We can get more into the specifics of it if you like
1: well I think there was this the entire thing to me was breathtakingly experimental and also breathtakingly traditional in some ways mm-hmm. you know it is obviously like essentially like a film noir uh it's contemporary noir with lots of secrets and lots of betrayals and violence and you know the finding out that people closest to you have been working against you like all the stuff that that really fuels more, which is obviously a a genre that he feels incredibly comfortable working in because all this drama is heightened in those genre pieces. And I thought it was really wild how it was essentially marketed. You know, if you looked at the marketing materials or if you watched the trailer, I think you had an idea of the guy on a plot line, but you probably went into it thinking this is about Timothy Oliphant and Claire Danes have their son kidnapped. And Dennis Quaid is the sort of patriarch of the family and we're going to get like real acting chops from these great actors and then it winds up becoming this story of these young kids from Guyana who are trying to negotiate they're caught between these two kind of forces the underworld of of Guyana and like this sort of rich Tony Manhattan family who are trying to make their way through this cloudy kidnapping scheme
2: and the lie of capitalism and yeah. the lie of America, right. that, that this is something in the beginning when we meet them and they seem relatively innocent, that they, they're they eager they're to go dying it's, going to 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 to, it's going to be fun, it's going to be an America. adventure it's yeah. going to change their lives and then what they're presented with when they get there is just it's just—it's—it's horrific you yeah. know? It's, it's just greed and violence and they're desperate to get out um, I think it's a good point about the classic trappings of it. Um, Ed Solomon, the screenwriter who Soderbergh has worked with before. Who and he wrote, wrote No Sudden Move, which is,
1: I, I've re No Sudden Move a bunch recently yeah. and
2: it's really, really great. That's a period piece too, yeah. but it is, um, but but he uh, he wrote all the episodes here. It is, it, at least in its inception, it is not, it's not note for note, but it, it feels deeply indebted to the Kurosawa film High and Low, yeah. which is also about a mistaken kidnapping and everything that spirals out from that. But it's just, it's the best to me it's the best case scenario where it is not a reboot or a retelling or a remake it's like well what is the germ of this idea okay what's interesting to us about it now and what can we do and also that's not exactly like um it's not like remaking you know a, a disney movie sure. this is not the most well-known movie at this point 60 years after it was released so i love that aspect of it that they're engaging with very established like storytelling structure and filmic language and Mm -hmm. then doing something very different with it. I feel like when I watch
1: Soderbergh's stuff nowadays, it's like um, listening to a record that has a very unconventional mix. Hmm. So.
2: Like Metallica's Saint Anger?
1: Well, or even stuff that's like, this would be a reference that maybe not a ton of people get, but like like a record made by Steve Albini where Mm -hmm. like, you know, there's a very real emphasis on like live drums and like the way the drums sound in the room. And so that, you're almost confronted with the fact that like, usually when you hear drums in popular music, like, that's not actually how drums sound if you Mm -hmm. were standing in front of them. I say all this because the way he shoots and the way he edits, which is essentially hand-in-hand, like he'll shoot all day and then he'll edit at night on his laptop, and the way that they made Full Circle, which was, I think, supposed to be another experimental story the way Mosaic was which was their second collab or their first collaboration before No Sudden Move was the show Mosaic that was on HBO a few years ago and that was sort of like a choose your own adventure or choose your own protagonist Mm -hmm. mystery story this was going to be something similar to that where there was going to be like a linear story but then there was going to be these character dependent episodes that were like the same action but Mm -hmm. through this person's perspective and I think they scrapped that and scrapped a fair amount of what they had shot and then reshot some stuff and of this this is how this went i think you can feel that hmm. when watching it i think that there are th- parts of this show that you know like the the casino aspect and seemingly like a mob subplot that don't really like get resolved or mm-hmm. fully explained but i like being treated like a grown up and trying to figure this stuff out and i found that when the final two episodes got to me there was almost this like symphonic kind of mm-hmm. buildup and release. And even the music itself becomes this sort of like romantic, you know, 1950s noir score.
2: It's also an example of what I think works best in this type of storytelling. And also just it's a sign of it's just kind of a sign of confidence and maturity because the nature of the story demands that there is going to be a series of almost remarkable coincidences or secrets. And everybody's not telling the whole truth and everything is connected. This show leans into that. It's called Full Circle. Mm-hmm. It's about people bound together. It's about uh, the past resonating in the future. So it's explicitly saying that that is what we're dealing with. But also the way Soderbergh shoots it, he, under- like, he accepts the world that the show is going to be set in. And he's not that interested in like hiding the ball. That like there's a, oh, well, the, police ins- the, the postal inspector actually was involved in the original thing. And yeah. he's going to be, who cares? there's that feeling that he always brings probably both because of who he is intellectually and creatively, but also because he shoots these things himself with his rapacious style. Like he, the feeling I always get is curiosity. The camera is barreling forward, looking at what's interesting to it within the world that you've agreed upon. Yeah. And it's not trying to change your mind about the world or make excuses for it or try to hide the the plot, you know, which could feel a little bit, it, it's just, it's never that. It doesn't stay still. For you to be like, well, wait, how did they get? To he there? does
1: a bunch of shots in this, in this show where he's just sitting in the passenger seat, literally of the car that somebody is driving around New York. Somebody City. else is driving. Yeah. And the two
2: people are in the back seat, which yeah. is not normally how people sit in cars, and but. it's also
1: not normally how they shoot stuff. You know, I mean, like he is. It, it, there are moments in the last two episodes where I'm like, oh, we're just the running gun nature of this is just really building to something special. I thought that, and we could talk a little bit about what this show is about and what it meant, but I thought that the. The moment where it becomes apparent that sort of, and I've seen it critiqued a little bit, like, you know, are the Browns let off too easy? Or is there like, is the class Mm -hmm. critique not exactly like watertight at a certain point? But I thought that the two sides, these two families who are sort of almost up until the moment that Ms. Mahabir finds out that Aked's been killed, like they're under the impression that they have kind of righted. The scales, you know, mm-hmm. that like that they have paid back this circle, that that things are things are now like effectively like rounded out. And then Javier becomes the the sort of new sacrifice. Like he is in fact the child to get sacrificed that they had intended to sacrifice in this whole process. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was r- such a gut punch because he is left to this life where he's standing in the marshes o- off this river in New York. As they fly back to Guyana, and he's killed a guy with a machete. Yes, I mean, it's dark.
2: It's dark, and it's also though like what was so striking about it was these two kids show up, and one is cut out for it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, you know that, that that's almost a value neutral statement, but he is wired to survive in a way that Louis is not. Yeah, and continues to you know, and again, like that's a testament to the script and the plotting and the pacing that like we believe that Javier can like. A couple things happen where you're like, how is he still alive? Yeah. But but it, this show... Javier, so, sorry, I said Javier, yeah. Which, by the way, is the coolest way ever to say Xavier. Yeah. Like, <laughs> when Kevin Feige reboot the X-Men with Professor Javier... Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah, like, that fundamental difference that he can do it and then understands what he is capable of and who he is and what he's willing to do for his... for people who aren't. Yes. You know, is... It's it's cutting. It but really, I just
1: I just love the depiction of this, like... These two families who have a transactional mm-hmm. relationship to their morality. You know, it's like Claire Danes. Mm-hmm. Sam gives the painting to Louis and is like, "This is my reparation."
2: You know Please what I mean? Please just take this. Yeah. I recognize. I recognize the scale is imbalanced, and this is. I will now balance. And
1: Savitra's so like, all I have to do is this mm-hmm. ceremony and like have one child to replace another child, and I'm out. And I get away scot free. But yet. also
2: the idea that you can um, that peace or forgiveness can be. Can be handed down from on high. You think about Louis's entrance into the One Fifth Avenue building, yeah, and then his exit, where he has to sneak in by having um, um, Natalia Natalia scream, and then when he leaves with this two hundred fifty thousand dollars, he's just like, "Hey, how's it going?" They're like, "Sir, like you're Louis, right? Like, have a nice night, sir." Yeah, as
1: he's carrying a painting out,
2: he's he's been given permission.
1: Where did you wind up with the the melody harmony character? The
2: played by Z- Zazie Beetz. So I've been thinking about this. I was having some conversations about it uh, off-pod, even. I think that one of the opportunities that I, that it draws actors to Soderbergh is the opportunity to do things, to try things, to commit to things that they might not otherwise get to do. And I love Zazie Beetz. I think she's a great performer. I think she's charismatic. I always look forward to watching her. This was a prickly part and one that kind of at times, I know there was the running subplot of her mental uh, her wellness yeah. and But at times it beggared belief that she could run roughshod over everything the way that she does and approach people and talk the way that she does. But I also was like, this is an opportunity for her, too. She has made a choice. And Soderbergh, the way he works with actors, he's not, you know, speaking of Steve Albini and record producers, he's not twiddling knobs. Nope. He's like you're. That's your frequency. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to shoot around it, and you're going to be um, like an act of God or force of nature. But the part
1: as written is actually a difficult part because she is mm-hmm. walking into these rooms where it's nothing but secrets and is immediately intuiting what the truth is.
2: Yeah, and in that one of the things that was interesting about it is that she felt like a CBS procedural mm-hmm. hero. She's House. She's yes. the Mentalist, or all these other shows that I don't watch, but I presume knowledge of. Like that, she has a superpower. Um, it's very Soderbergh to let an archetype like that loose in something that we're moments ago are describing as yeah. realistic. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, there were there was some, some points in the middle where I was starting to be like, I'm not sure if this is working for me. But by the end, it kind of was just because of the, because the, the, her path, there were, there were, until the, I mean, there were, cons- there were different circles rotating at different speeds, right? Like Claire Danes goes to see William Sadler, her uncle, and we have that scene. And then the Har- Mel shows up yeah. for a, a, an echo of that scene at a different speed. So I think it ultimately it did work for me. Did you feel different?
1: Right? No, I thought it. it's it's like the, the way you put it is exactly right. Like once you get on her frequency and, and you sort of like adjust your brain to the fact that this is in fact a character that you have watched hundreds of times is the uh, intuitive detective mm-hmm. who somehow divines that when people are lying or telling the truth or what they're lying about and in every crime novel we've ever read, Mm-hmm that detective shows up at the very end and is like, here is the conspiracy. I figured it out, much to my own personal expense. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what Mel is doing. You know, it's just that she also was doing it with a personality disorder. And I thought that was an incredibly kind of brave role in performance and performance and to have somebody be like, you think that you like these anti-hero detectives. Mm-hmm. Do you like it in this
2: package? I, I think that everyone uniformly was really good in the show, but everyone was using it in everybody's using the opportunity differently. Oh yeah. Can, um, so definitely. like we mentioned Javier, like that's a, a kid named Shahi Cole, who I'm not familiar with. I think he's British. It's a brilliant performance. Yeah. It's an exciting performance because you've never seen him before. Similarly, Paul Du Sharma played Garmin Henry. Yeah. Kind of the MVP of the of the entire series. Just an incredibly riveting, finely drawn portrait of someone who I have not seen on television before. Yeah. Another British guy doing incredible work. But then, like, there's the Claire Danes performance, which we've texted about. Like, Claire Danes is never not good. I am a Claire Danes fan. Yes. I would say that I'm ready for a different Claire Danes...
1: I think that you got it in this show. ...performance. Yeah. But we can agree to disagree. That's what's amazing about this podcast.
2: I feel like the thing about... Kai, am I, I thought podcasts <laughs> were about people agreeing on things all the time and <laughs> saying they're good. Have I been doing this wrong for years? I, it's not that I want to say that she's not good. It's that her being high-strung higher society person. I mean, this was this was Fleischman. This was in some ways homeland. I, I would just be into seeing her playing a different part I think
1: that if she had been double crossed by her husband and her father, or or her uncle Gene, and this was all about her finding out the ways in which mm-hmm. she was wronged. But the fact of the matter was was that she was the sort of conductor of a lot of this yes. and the
2: orchestrator of a lot of this. And she played the turn at the in the last episode was was well played. Yes, and and went to a different place. But than she did expected. have like,
1: her Fleischman haircut. She was she was just
2: there's just that she does a kind of upper class severity that she's better at than anybody. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't why she was. I think she can do other things. Sure. But you know you got to let the game come to you. You got to play. You can't change that. So I get that. But it was also cool to see like Timothy Oliphant not. To be in New York, we don't usually see him. We don't usually see Dennis Quaid being a goofball yeah. with a ponytail. Um, Jim Gaffigan is a good actor and got an action scene. Yeah. You know, I I really enjoyed that casting. There's there's sometimes, sometimes there's surprise casting that feels stunty, and then there's surprise casting that is the best type of casting, which is purely a surprise, and you're happy to see it.
1: Everything about it was so offbeat and yet so rewarding in that, like, I want my mystery crime show dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. And I I think I got both. And I I thought it was just classic Soderbergh in a lot of ways. And also like in some ways where you could see the seams and you could see him moving some of the pieces around to try and like make sense of it for himself. I'm so enamored with him as a filmmaker, I think partially because process is so important to him and process becomes like a lot of what he talks about. So it was interesting in this conversation you're about to hear that I had with him to hear him be pretty explicitly like, here are some of my like ideas about the world itself. Mm-hmm. we've talked about C- Command Z, and Command Z is essentially born out of a desire for him to talk about the ways in which like people can make a difference on very small in small ways on an everyday level. And like you mentioned, the proceeds from Command Z are uh, going to charity. So it was a really cool conversation to have with him after making full circle and on Command Z
2: one last thing, like like the great filmmakers are the ones who are so focused. On and know just in, innately like the story they want to tell mm-hmm. that there's almost always a byproduct where all the potential stories that they move past in the pursuit of what they're telling. Th- it's almost like the reverse Marvel where where like the MCU is like, oh, remember that stone that, that right. Shang-Chi kicked in the first act? Well, <laughs> wait till you hear the origin story of that. Like, wouldn't you sign up right now for an Ed Solomon scripted show about the relationship between different immigrant crime families in the outer boroughs of New York. Yeah. Like the 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 scene where Natalia and Louis go to the Chinese Mr. Chung, yeah. Mr. Chung to escape.
1: And he sells the tries to sell them back to the job area.
2: That's that's a whole show I would yep. watch. And that wasn't this one, but it just reminded me, it just kind of one part of the excitement of a program like this is like, oh man, there's just there's still a lot of stuff out there for us. Or for writers when they get back to work
1: so uh andy and i will be back on thursday with a mailbag episode uh stay tuned for my interview with steven soderbergh
2: is he going to come back did you end the interview being like come back to talk to us about all the other things that we want to talk to you about
1: <laughs> I, mean, I did not end with that. it didn't end with that Kai, did he say he that? said Cause... to be continued but i don't know if he meant like Great. his filmmaker career or a podcasting relationship Well,
2: when i have him on my podcast yeah maybe i'll cover some of that stuff
1: Your me. your podcast throwing running mind We'll be back on Thursday. Please check out my interview with Steven Soderbergh coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows, plus there's free delivery and even gas discounts, so when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this, plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only, separate registration required, $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Stephen, thanks so much for joining me. You're one of my favorite filmmakers. So this is an absolute thrill to talk to you about Command Z, which is your new series that's up on your site. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about the origin story of this project to start with. So you, you read Kurt Anderson's book, Evil Geniuses. I know that you're this voracious reader. I follow your year-end diaries pre-religiously when they come out. When you're reading as throughout the year... Are you always reading with an eye towards maybe this is adaptable, maybe this is interesting for something down the line? And is this somebody I would like to collaborate with if they are, like in Kurt's case, available to do so?
3: No, not really. I'm, I'm reading mostly for pleasure. Sometimes as homework, you know, I'm trying to get additional information about a subject that I'm exploring, but more often than not, reading for me functions as a real palate cleanser, and I I, I want to kind of separate myself from the day to day work. In this case, though, I've known Kurt for a while. I think I've read everything that he's published. I hope I have, but this book in particular spoke to me in the sense of filling in the last part of a a sentence that I felt was on the tip of my tongue about how we got to where we are currently. And he just did such a a great job in this book of, of sort of braiding all of these strands in a way that was smart and as Kurt's voice, which is a, is a you know he has a great writing voice. It's very entertaining. It's very uh, approachable. And so I reached out to him and I just said, I don't know what I want to do with this, but I think something should be done with it. Or m- more to the point, something should be done about it. And we just started talking and and agreed that. You know, on any project, you sort of start by eliminating everything that it shouldn't be. Yeah. So so what we determined that it shouldn't be was obviously a kind of documentary or mockumentary or something that was not scripted. And once we decided, OK, we don't want to do that, it needs to exist in a kind of fictional, dramatic Space, what should that be? And as you may or may not have heard, we ended up going down this road of short videos that were kind of leaflets from the future on some sort of platform that still exists in 2036. So these were minute, two minute things, characters sort of giving you glimpses of two versions of a world. It was interesting. We had half of the the little clips were from a world in which things were not fixed. And then half of the clips were from a world in which things did get fixed. And we worked on that. We wrote scripts, we hired cast, we shot them, and then we looked at them and we said, this doesn't work at all. <laughs> we literally have to start over. So we threw those out. Some of them still appear in little pieces on the uh, the video wall in Command C. You can see little clips that are from that iteration. But we just started over again and agreed. We need to work in a format that's more familiar to us And that we have more of a feel for and where, especially for me, where I feel more comfortable in saying no, it should be like this. And so we started over, we got some fun new people involved, and it ended up, you know, resulting pretty much in what you watched. But you know, we were trying to find this line of making sure. That we were self-aware in our targeting of issues, and that that we ourselves were not sort of immune from being targeted. At a certain point late in the show, when Michael Sarah is talking to the youngest of the three team members, you know, encouraging her to get involved and to do things. And she really kind of goes off on him and says, I don't need you to tell me how to fix things. And this is, you know, you always think you, you rich people always think you have the answers to everything. And she just kind of tells him to fuck off. And so, and, and that was because I felt well, if I was that person's age and somebody my age said the things that Michael Sarah was saying, I'd I'd get up in their grill too and go, why should I be listening to you? You're the one who fucked all this up. So we tried to make sure it was, uh, that it was a good version of a circular firing squad. And so there was a lot of back and forth and discussion about, you know, being an equal opportunity fender.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about the actual production? Because this, got shot between Magic Mike and Full Circle. Am I right?
3: Yeah. So that was that was a squeeze. Um, yeah. The, <laughs> the room that they work in is actually this photo studio in my office about 30 feet from here. And then, you know, we tried to... When we were going outside, we tried to kind of keep it in the neighborhood. And it was... I think we shot for... 14 days 14 or 15 days and it would it might have come out a lot earlier if i'd been aware of how many visual effects are in the show for some reason it, i just wasn't grokking that every time michael spoke it was going to involve some sort of visual effect so when we had a, an assembly of the whole thing, the editor said, "You know, there's like 270 visual <laughs> effect shots in this show, which is more than anything I, like all the things I've ever made combined." And the problem was showing it to people; it kind of it it, it kind of didn't work without that effect, like yeah. that the the Oz like floating head thing really was important so it took a while even to get it in a state where i could start showing it to friends and getting feedback and as a result that kind of pushed the release down and i was you know running right up against the july 17th you know target that's in the show Uh, so it was a bit of a scramble at the end and it also as you said while we were shooting i was trying to prep full circle and location scout and work on the script with ed so uh and finish magic mike so it was it was uh there was a lot going on
1: do you like that feeling of i I suppose it's multitasking it to your use your word squeezed like does that create like a a kind of beating the deadline old journalist almost feeling or like you know you're you're racing in a bunch of different places is that a comfortable place for you It's not uncomfortable
3: only because I am happy to delegate. I work with really good people and I give them a lot of freedom and a lot of responsibility. And so it just means I have to be very, very smart about how much real estate I give each project, even over the course of a day. But a lot of that means having conversations with other people that I'm collaborating with and explaining to them I need you to take a run at this I need you to make sure x happens but it was yeah I mean it was it was it was a busy time but it wasn't I didn't feel overwhelmed it just ended up that way you know the timing of it if 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 we hadn't thrown away the first iteration of command Z, uh, that wouldn't have happened. So it was kind of uh, my fault in a sense. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was hard for me to be upset because I was the one that said, let's throw out all that other stuff and start over while I was getting ready to start shooting magic Mike, So, you know, you have to, you have to be aware of who's, who was, uh, changing the water in the fishbowl, so to speak.
1: Uh, One of the things I love about Command Z is that while it is at times psychedelic and at times, you know, this almost speculative sci-fi that is also very much rooted in the real world, it has the beats of like a really good sitcom at points like, you know, like I I was curious. I know that Roy Wood and Chloe Radcliffe both worked on scripts for the series and I was curious about how much, you know, debate or turning over kind of the mechanics of like of the joke and the joke is going to come back 10 minutes later when we end the episode or there's going to be these recurring gags with Chloe Radcliffe being late or Roy Roy, and wanting to get over the seawall to meet his date. How did the sort of comedy aspects of it manifest through those two leads?
3: Well, it was, you know, I think largely that's where Kurt and I were sort of leading this thing when we rebuilt it. Kurt brought Larry Doyle in, who's very experienced in this world. Larry brought some people in that he liked uh, that were really talented and funny. And so everybody was really rowing in the same direction and looking for that kind of rhythm. You didn't want it to become metronomic in a way that that a, a sort of a sitcom, which is sometimes is used as a pejorative, like you, you didn't want it to fall into that setup, setup, gag, rhythm. But at the same time, it was designed to be a comedy. And the good news was, you know, we had really smart people working. I mean, certain people were responsible for certain episodes. But the bottom line is, you know everybody at a certain point got eyes on everything and was able to weigh in and make suggestions. And then when you have a cast, that's this smart, you're, you're incorporating ideas from them on the fly. So it was, it was very fluid and a lot of fun. It it went really fast. I mean, the funny thing is, you know, Michael, who's, one of the lead characters in the show as the way we shot it, you know, we did all of this stuff very
1: quickly. You know, <laughs> I was wondering how you did the, the Oz sequences. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So w- the key to that was making sure that we had people in the room with him to interact so that he wasn't just doing lines into a void. So I had a couple of cameras on him, although I only ended up using one. But he was able to, you know, perform with actors in the room so that the rhythms all felt right. But, I mean, he worked for two days um, and yet he's all over the show. So it was it was, you know, it was one of those.
1: You know, at the end of each episode, you have these cards that recommend other films to watch if you're interested in and sort of like for more right. on, you know, Nuclear power, or or climate change, or whatever you you suggest people watch additional films. I was curious how that came about as an idea to throw on at the end of, of of each episode.
3: That was kind of a late breaking thing. I was I was looking at the show and felt that each episode was missing a button. Like just they needed a button. There needed to be something that really told you, you know, that's the end of the episode. But it needed to be something that was kind of half serious and half not serious. And so, yeah, we just came up with that at the last minute. And as jokey as some of those ideas may seem, I would argue, particularly, you know, for more information about dogs, (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, if you like dogs, I think those are three good movies. Turner to and Hooch
1: is a great, yeah, it's a great yeah, recommendation. That's,
3: so, you know what I mean? So, it's kind of doing two things at once. It's supposed to be funny, but also, yeah, I mean, if you like dogs, why wouldn't you want to watch those movies?
1: Yeah, it had me wondering whether or not, uh, y- you know, you, you feel in your experience as a viewer that you have your point of view or your political point of view, or your, you maybe. Yeah, I I think your political point of view changed by films and how often that happens for you.
3: It's a good question. I mean, I I typically look to people, real people and real world experiences to drive me toward some sort of new way of thinking. I guess I, I don't expect art to teach me I expect it to show me something, but I guess my expectation is not that it's going to teach me something apart from me watching uh, a movie and, and trying to learn how to direct that yeah. different. Um, but there's no question that it can be an influence because it's such a powerful medium. And I wish, you know, the last few years... You know, with what's going on in not only this country but in the world, um, has really made me question whether the dichotomy that we all seem to adhere to without question of you know good guy, bad guy, good character, bad character. If that's a kind of false dichotomy, because You see leaders around the world acting almost in every particular like Bond villains, essentially, except in some cases, even more, even more lethal. And my point is, supposedly, when we go see a Bond movie and you say, oh, that's the bad guy. And we're rooting for the good guy. We're rooting for James Bond because he's supposed to be the good guy. We're not rooting for the bad guy. And then you look at a country in which the bad guy wins. You begin to wonder, is that really what people are extracting from these movie experiences? Or are there a lot of people in that room actually not rooting for James Bond, but rooting for <laughs>
1: for the villains, Belt. yeah. You know what well, I'm that, saying? Like, is yeah. is there?
3: I I just wonder if there's some sort of disconnect between our kind of inherited ideas about villains and heroes. That's that in the real world, in in people's you know private lives, um, just that dichotomy doesn't exist.
1: I mean, that's a I fascinating, yeah, and that's a fascinating response. I was, I, if I guess. Always,
3: if we're always rooting for, quote, the good guy, why do they lose so often in the real world <laughs> when we have the opportunity to yeah. influence the outcome? I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this.
1: Well, I think part of it is also that maybe people save their idealism for the movie theater and then in their political lives are deeply cynical or deeply self-serving. I don't know. OK, so
3: let's say let's say in the, in the event of let's let's talk about sportsmanship and let's talk okay. about let's talk about how uh, the former president looks down on any sort of behavior that we would consider sportsman like as regards anybody that he's in the arena with. Like he is the opposite of that. He thinks yeah. that's weak. He thinks that real men don't do that. So for somebody who ascribes to his belief system, when they watch a basketball game or a football game or a soccer match or a tennis match, when the players at the end of the game go up to each other, embrace, talk, say, hey, good game, you know, tough one, see you next week, that makes me feel good when I see that. I like seeing that kind of connection between the people that are battling it out. If you're somebody who supports the opposite of that, does that make you angry? When you see, when you see that kind of footage <laughs> at the end of the game, Do you go, why are they doing that? Why don't they hate them? Why aren't they calling them terrible names? Why are they hugging? Why are they exchanging jerseys? They shouldn't be doing that. You're fighting them. They're the enemy. Like, how do you put these two things together in one human being? You watch, you know, sportsmanlike behavior on TV, and you're like, "That's okay." And then when you see this other person acting in complete opposition to that on a public stage, you go, "Oh, I'm down with that too." Yeah,
1: (laughs) I I don't don't know. Understand? As somebody from Philadelphia, and is is a city that's not always known for its sportsmanship. You know, I, I I appreciate a rivalry, and I appreciate when sports fandom kind of transcends a level of, oh, I'm just watching something for entertainment or I'm watching something to support my team and goes into this almost like identity and like what this city means versus what Dallas means as a city or what these two franchises represent. But at the end of the day, I want these guys then to like be crying in each other's arms and saying, hey, we really left it all out there and that was great.
3: Yeah, exactly. You're like, yeah, I want to beat them, but I respect them. I think that's what I'm talking about. Is why why in this one context is that form of respect good and make you feel good and you support that? And then in this other context, you're completely against it. You're completely you subscribe to this idea that no opponent is worthy of your respect ever. I, I'm I'm baffled.
1: You know, I, the reason why I was asking you about whether or not you ever felt changed or or that your political outlook was changed by a film, I have a attitude towards your movies where I think for a long time, even as like I was just i'm as I've been completely immersed in your filmography for decades now of looking at you as this kind of formalist, and I think a lot of that might have something to do with your public persona where you talk a lot about films and the problem solving that goes into films and then what happens when you take Piece of content that you've made and distributed into the world. And obviously, you have a lot of really thoughtful things to say about the state of the industry. And then I think sometimes, like, the overt political messages of the films get they're just left on the screen for the viewer to take in. Like, they're not you're not walking around doing a, you know, a whistle stop tour, bringing people's attention to agribusiness for the informant or pharma with side effects or whatever, but you're an overtly political filmmaker. And that's, it's so interesting that you, uh, you're not Oliver Stone. You know what I mean? You're not making, you know, these, you're not making speeches about the issues that are in the films. You let the films and the stories tell themselves. And I think what happens then is that when you watch a movie, even like No Sudden Move or something like that, where it gets delivered through genre, It's not necessarily that you now are politically activated. It's just that you have a different way of thinking about everything when you see a movie like that. So I don't even know if I have a question as much as it's a a curiosity about how you see yourself as a political filmmaker.
3: Well, I think you could make an argument if you present the world on screen in a way that's accurate at all you're probably making a political film. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, a, a movie or anything, a show, but let's say a movie is an act of seduction. And so I'm trying to work in a way that I would want to be seduced. And that is not somebody getting up in my face that I don't know very well and sort of spouting rhetoric that doesn't work for me when I'm watching a movie and it doesn't work for me in life. So if, if I'm to your point, if I'm working on a project that addresses the issue of how the pharmaceutical industry works and what the, what the result is on the people that take the drugs that are produced I feel genre is a great way to seduce an audience into thinking about that because if they don't want to think about that, they can just watch a, a you know a psychological thriller, and they don't have to. They can be satisfied and not have an opinion about the pharmaceutical industry at all. And so, yeah, that's, that's why I think in the last. 15 years or so since Che, really, I would argue everything I've made has been a, a variation on a genre film. Even Contagion was a horror film to me.
1: Yeah, it certainly was. I, we did uh, a podcast about Contagion um, the week. I think before Rudy Gobert and the NBA shut down, like it was as it was sort of emerging that this was happening, but we were kind of still maybe it was going to be two weeks kind of thing uh, yeah. and and we did, and we talked about contagion as this horror movie and yeah. as and we were all starting to wash our hands. I'm sure a thousand people have come up to you and told you like, yeah, did you know, contagion was pretty prescient, you know well,
3: the, I mean, you know, here's an example just just working on that movie. Anybody that worked on that movie, forget about if somebody saw it, it it was like being inoculated. You could from that point forward, you couldn't not think about that. You all everybody involved suddenly in the in the nine years between that movie and covid taking over the world. uh, I can assure you. Very, very conscious of washing their hands of germs, of being in crowds. Like you couldn't not think about it having been involved in that production. And so now it's one of the things that, that made COVID, it has, has made COVID such a huge part of our lives is you realize. While there are a lot of things that happen in the world, it's rare that everybody in the world experiences something simultaneously, um, and this was one of those. It had been uh, arguably seventy years—I mean, since World War II—where where the entire globe was essentially wrapped up in a sequence of events that were happening to everybody at the same time. It has a different psychological. Effect, I think, one that you know is going to play out over generations, just like that war did.
1: Yeah, i I often think about. and it's hardly important, but it, it, I think a lot about the knock on effect from I, you know, this memories I have of every time I would have a Zoom with friends. Every time my wife and I would like kind of look out the window or go out on our porch, and we would kind of look at the our neighbors and see that they were going through the very similar experience or if not the exact same experience that we were and then in the aftermath of that or in the sort of post-covid era how everything feels a lot more siloed um especially culturally you know i i I think that one of the reasons why people are responding so much to barbie and oppenheimer is there is almost this feeling of everybody going and seeing something and experiencing something together do you find that to be the case as well
3: yeah, I think so, and I think the success, the the outsized success of both speaks to that of wanting that of of our need for that, our need to have something positive that we're all experiencing at the same time because it's been a while. So uh, apart from the quality of those movies, I think you're right that that there's there was this kind of you know unspoken need for all of us to feel good together. Yeah. Because it just feels like it's been a long time.
1: Is it strange to be making things and, and and frankly making things in such a prolific fashion at a time when not only can you see that people's, I think brains have changed uh, over the last couple of years, but certainly the distribution models and the platforms have changed so much.
3: Yeah, well look, it's the it's the artist's job to adapt. Like that's you you can't the genie is not going back in the bottle. And so I, I'm I'm always looking forward and trying to gauge which path has the most potential there as it as it happens. You know, so I'm so if there's something that interests me and and that I want to do, um, the first question is, well, what is it? Is it a mm-hmm. show or is it a movie? And then once you've determined that, well, where where is the best home for this? No sudden move again is is absolutely a movie and not a show and was paid for by what was then HBO Max, what is now Max Warner as a movie for the platform. That's not a movie like that in the current environment is going to succeed theatrically, like no sudden moves, not going to make a hundred million dollars. It's just not luckily somebody still wanted to make it and we got to make it. And I'm glad that we did. Yeah. Um, But that's, I'm never going to be the kind of person as much as I love seeing movies in a theater and would like my movies to be seen in a theater. I'm not going to not make that movie because it's for a platform. I don't have the luxury of doing that. And I don't want to do that. I still want to make it. Um, But, you know, I hope there's, there's real momentum now people have shown that they will go out if it's something that they really are excited about. So the question is can we keep that ball in the air?
1: And with No Sudden Move specifically, I, I rewatched it again last night and it's really one of my recent favorites of yours. And I, I can feel the context around that film getting memory hold a little bit from myself, where I'm no longer thinking of it as the movie that you did with Kimmy and let them all talk. And I'm no longer thinking of it as something that was essentially put straight onto the platform. It's just a movie that is happens to be on Max that oh, I was looking for. And then when you start it and the Warner Brothers logo comes up, you're just like, this is just a movie. You know what I mean? Well, like
0: well,
3: exactly. <laughs> 10 years down the road, exactly. And so the point is making sure that it's good so yeah. that so that you want to watch it 10 years from now. But I think you're right. Ultimately everything will end up there so your your job is to make sure it's good enough to to stand out but you know i've got a couple i've got two projects in front of me that sure seem like movies that that could show in theaters and the, you know the market uh, will tell me if i'm right or wrong when they're finished
1: i was curious how you wound up uh, arriving at the place, not only of let's put Command Z up on the site and and have and and charge a fee for that, but also what about the the content or the the story or the the, the script or whatever? Like was like okay, some of these are going to be seven or eight minutes or nine minutes. Some of these are going to be twenty one minutes. Was that something that had been decided early on? Because I know obviously it went through these different iterations. But how did you arrive at? this kind of made me remember like fondly like the days of watching like high maintenance on Vimeo and you know just a, a kind of wild west feeling of of storytelling on the internet
3: well that was that freedom was important i think to this project to to not feel that you had to be boxed in by a certain length certain number of episodes we started out with more episodes and ended up i think we had 10 or 11 and then it ended up at 8 and the freedom of that was really was really nice of of knowing look this is this is the point of this episode and the point can be made in this amount of time and once the point is made we can move on and not really having to to worry about that i mean certainly there was you know basic storytelling paradigms would indicate even in this sort of unusual structure that the first episode and the last episode are probably going to be longer than some of the other episodes because in one uh, on, on the left you're setting it up and then the episode on the right you're paying it off you know, those are probably going to be the the goalposts and everything else is going to be in the middle. But it seemed uh, one of the reasons to put it up on extension was the fact that it didn't it really from a from a traditional platform point of view, this thing falls between two stools because it's not it's not really fitting, you know, a traditional idea of what a series is on a platform like you were saying it it feels more like what we've seen out of pure web series
1: so are you continuing for the rest of the year and i'll let you go in just a second but i was just curious you know you're on this real run where you've got full circle which i I adored by the way uh and uh and magic mike earlier this year you've got command z are you are you throwing yourself into project after project continuously, or are you taking any time off or?
3: Yeah, I'm hoping, um, I've got a, like I said, I've got a small, uh, a really small film that we're hoping to do in September. If we, um, can get our waiver, it's a, it's an independent movie. Um, and then I have something more, you know, medium level budget for next spring. That's also a movie. Um, so that's the that's the plan. It's things are happening. but as compared to you know, where I was twelve months ago, it's a lot calmer. and And then we'll see. those are the two things I've got in front of me. And I'm not I try not to get too many things out in front because you change. yeah, when you make when you make something, you come out the other end of it a little different. And I'm aware that it's one thing for me to go, oh, I think I'm still gonna be super excited about the thing I'm doing in March of next year, because that's not that far off. But to think about something two years from now, I don't know what my frame of mind will be. And like I may, I may come out of these two projects feeling like I wanna go in a completely different direction and this thing that I had teed up is no longer interesting you just don't know um, until you get there so I'm I'm trying to be I'm trying to learn you know from what's happened to me in the past and not get too many planes stacked up on the runway
1: well uh, I can't wait to see what comes next uh, Stephen thank you so much for talking to me today and thanks for thanks for sharing your thoughts on Comanze
3: my pleasure to be continued